Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and those living in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, and I left Trosimus sick at Miletus. Hurry so you can get here before winter. Ebulus sends you greetings. And so do Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. May the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Now we think about inspired writers of Scripture. They didn't really write a lot. Our New Testament's fairly thin. Every word counts. Every word matters. Did you read the books of Paul, the letters of Paul? How many times does he mention people specifically by name, either at the beginning of those epistles or at the very end? Why does he do that? Because they were people he loved. They were real people with real lives and real stories. And he loved them enough to say, take care of this person or this person sends their greetings. Because they were one family. And they were important to each other. I mentioned we're doing something a little bit different tonight. I've I've tried to uh, announce it and promote it as best I could. Um, I appreciate the elders for giving us a little bit of leeway to do this. But tonight is our very first uh, story slam here at Bay Area. And we're kind of aiming towards next quarter when we start our intergenerational drive together. On Wednesday nights, uh, we're going to do something completely different. You've heard a little bit about that. You'll hear a little bit more. But that's sort of what brought the genesis for for tonight. Um, I asked seven people if they would share a part of their story. All seven said yes. Every single one said yes. Um, I I want to mention a couple of things before we get started. First, nobody volunteered for this, okay? (laughs) Nobody said, let me do it. Uh, I asked, they said yes. Also, none of these seven, again, Zoe's not going to be able to be here tonight, but, but none of these six do this for a living. They're not professional speakers. So give them the benefit of the doubt, okay? Um, we're family. We love each other. Um, these are our family members telling their stories. It's okay to laugh if they say something funny. It's okay to interact with each other, you know, with the speaker. It's okay to make eye contact and, and smile. Uh, it's okay to show your appreciation through applause. Uh, and I want you to be sure and understand, this is not a worship service, okay? This is a Wednesday night. This is not a corporate worship service. If we could, I would have rather have done this in the Family Life Center. Actually, I would have rather have done it at my house. But you all wouldn't fit in my house. But I want you to just pretend that you're at my house tonight and we're all getting together, sitting around a table or sitting around a fireplace if I had one, and we're listening to people tell stories. I gave these individuals, hey, Keith, great to see you, brother. Let me see you sitting back there. Speaking of answered prayers and out of the hospital, um, I gave these these individuals um, the topic of intergenerational experiences. And that's what you're going to hear about tonight. We are going to just draw for order. I didn't know how to do it any better, so... Thank you. 
Let me introduce our first speaker for tonight. Oh. Now, I've been telling you that one of the benefits of tonight is a chance to get to know each other a little bit better. And I'm going to admit to you, our very first uh, storyteller tonight is someone that, that I don't know very well. If you're in the youth group, you know this young lady very well. If you have kids in the youth group, you know uh, Cadence Erickson very well. Cadence first showed up here at Bay Area because of her friendship with Evan Bodart. And uh, now she's actually one of us. Actually, Robbie baptized you, right, a year or so ago at SunQuest. Very good. So Cadence is sort of representing the youth group tonight. No pressure, right, representing the youth group. But she'll be sharing a story about seeing God at work in the dynamics of her own family. So please welcome Cadence Erickson. Hello, um, you know, my name is Cadence Erickson. Um, Evan brought me to Bay Area about almost three years ago. We were friends through school. Um, but this story is about my father, and um, I'll just start. Okay, so when my father was young, he really didn't have the best childhood. Um, he didn't have, like, the newest toys, newest gadgets, anything like that. So he wanted the best for me. So he worked so hard and didn't care what sacrifices he had to go through himself to make me happy. So he decided that to put his own comfort underneath me and my mom's happiness. So he got a job installing cable, and that was really hard on his body, and his body was already really worn down from getting medically discharged from the military, from jumping out of airplanes one too many times. So um, cable link really didn't do the best for him. He was always coming home super late and being up before I was being gone and to work before I was up for school. So, um, one day, he was at work, and he decided that he felt a little off, like some tingling in his hands and feet, um, and he couldn't really see straight, so he thought that something was wrong, so he was just going to drive to the VA. He was all the way in New Tampa, so he wasn't really that close, but it wasn't that serious, so he was just going to drive, and everything was going to be fine. So he starts driving, and as he passes the nearest hospital, one of the Florida hospitals, his symptoms immediately got worse. He couldn't feel half of his face. His arms and legs weren't working very well, and he could barely drive in a straight line. So he made a U-turn and went to that hospital. So my mom got the call from him and picked me up from school. And he, we were all waiting in the hospital, and the nurse comes in a few minutes later and says, you have an aortic aneurysm. And if you don't know what that is, um, in the arteries in your heart, the tissue that's lining it, there's a weak spot, and it kind of bulges out. So it's very sensitive. If by lifting too much or having too much stress, it can burst and you can bleed out without knowing it in like five minutes. And she told us, this is the best part. She was like, it's not that bad. We only need to do open heart surgery if it's at five centimeters. Yours is at four and it's continuing to grow. So right there in the hospital bed, he called his boss and quit. But he always had a dream of being an entrepreneur and he always wanted to run his own business and do what he loved. This entire time, he wasn't worried. Me and my mom were worried sick, but he really wasn't phased because he knew and had faith in God that he was going to lead the way and that everything was going to be okay. So, taking that opportunity, he decided he was going to start up his own business. And it wasn't going well, but somehow our bills were still paid. 
somehow we still had food to eat and we still had our cars. So everything was going fine. Um, he went back a couple months later to get another x-ray and we're all waiting in the hospital room and she comes in and says, there's nothing there. There was never anything there. You had the wrong x-ray. <laughs> um, so there was, there was really nothing there. And as soon as that happened and we were no longer worried about anything, his business started to pick up and he was making making much a better living off of this than he was at Cable Link and he was much happier because he got to spend more time with his family and being around the people that he loved and loved him. And there was really never an issue to begin with. So him having the faith and him being believing in God and knowing he was there to protect him led him to living a better life than before. So his symptoms getting worse right before he was about to pass the hospital to go to the VA was a little sign from God saying, no, you need to go to that hospital. That's where I want you to go. So he did, and basically it. Thanks, Cadence. Ninth grade, right? Well done. Well done. Oh, boy. Believe it or not, Cadence is in the ninth grade, but we're going younger on our next uh, intergenerational storyteller. Our youngest storyteller tonight is Luke Bodart. Luke, come on up here, Luke. Let me, let me introduce you first. Luke is six years old, the son of Bo and Mel Bodart, the brother of Evan Bodart, the grandson of Glenn and Linda Howell. You know, when you're six years old, you don't have quite as much history of stories to choose from. <laughs> but Luke has a good story tonight about someone right here in our family who has made an impression on him by showing kindness and by being fun. So give a real warm welcome to Luke Bodart. My name is Luke Bodart, and I've been coming to Bay Area since I was born. I'd like to share a story about my friend, Mr. Terrell, I have known Miss I have known Mr. Terrell since I was a baby in the nursery. I didn't like going in the nursery, so he would take me and walk me around in the foyer. He has always been kind and has encouraged me with whatever I am doing. I have to do lots of push-ups for my martial arts class. He even did push-ups with me one 
Wednesday night here at church. I'm very thankful to have Mr. Trail's friendship. I introduced Luke as a six-year-old, and that's the facts. Tomorrow he's going to be a seven-year-old. So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. And the bar has been raised. Okay. Ah. When I first started putting this thing together, there was one person that I really hoped would be willing to do something as nutty as this. Angela Steed said, sure, why not? Since then, she's tried to back out a time or two, but not too much. Angela is mom to Jack and Lucy. She is married to, and this is her own words, the guy who leads singing. Still her own words, not Dave, not Orlando, not the new guy. <laughs> you know, the other guy, Travis. Angela works as a recruiting operations manager in market research, and her story tonight deals with how a special mentor helped her through the trepidations of college. Welcome Angela Steed to the stage. I can't even follow Luke. I'm so proud of you. I was emotional because I'm so proud of you, little man. And I'm proud of you too, Cadence. I just don't know you as well as I know Luke. <laughs> um, thank y'all so much for having me tonight. Uh, as um, my intro said, I'm going to talk about college experience. When I was 20 years old and in college, I was stuck. I was stuck in this emotional state of fear. This is the time of your life when you're supposed to declare a major. You're supposed to decide what you want to do for a living. You're supposed to decide who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And I didn't know what career I, wanted, I was supposed to choose. I did not have any discernible talents. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I was afraid of the outside world. I was afraid of people. And I was afraid of failure. Therefore, I couldn't make any decisions about my life. And I wasn't moving forward. So when I think about an intergenerational experience, um, I think back to my college life over 20 years ago, and I think of someone in particular who helped propel me forward from college life to career life. His name was David England. He was the college advisor of our campus newspaper called The Babbler. He also became my mentor, and here's how he did it. I attended college at this small Christian uh, school in Nashville, Tennessee, 
Lipscomb University, for some of those of you who've heard of it. And I'd really enjoyed creative writing when I was in high school, so I decided to join a college newspaper as a staff writer my freshman year. The Babbler was a student-run weekly paper where the college students developed ideas, wrote campus-related articles, we completed design, layout of the paper, we produced it, had it printed, um, and delivered it across campus. So at the start of my junior year, I would worked my way up uh, to a news editor position, and I was reporting to this guy, Chip Smith. He was supposed to be the paper's head editor that year. At the start of the year, Chip Smith edited exactly one issue of the paper, and he walked into David England's office and he quit. He said that he could not handle the challenge, the workload, the responsibilities that came with being an editor. Now, David England, he had a family of his own. He had a wife and a, a daughter in college, a son in high school, and he was the head of public relations at Lipscomb. And as the advisor of the school paper, his job was to oversee the student um, staff, conduct the final edits, and final approval of all the content layout and production. Uh, the day Chip Smith quit as editor, David called me into his office and he said, I need you to take over as editor of The Babbler. Now, Tim says our talk has to have a biblical application, so here's mine. This was kind of my Moses and the burning bush moment of my college life. My response to the head of public relations of Lipscomb University was, yeah, I'm going to have to do a hard pass on that, David. <laughs> because all I could think about was, I can't, I can't do that. I can't lead a staff of writers. I can't create content. I cannot run a newspaper. I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. I will fail. But David said to me, I believe in you. I will help you. I will guide you. I know you can do this. His plea was so inspiring and so moving. I humbly responded, no, David, I can't do it. You're really just going to have to find, you're going to have to find someone else to do this. And then David England's anger burned against me. And he said, if you don't take over as editor of the paper, there will be no babbler this year. So in 1996, I took over as editor of the college newspaper at Lipscomb University. And David was there to guide this scared kid who didn't know what she was doing and taught her, taught me how to run a newspaper and how to manage a staff of writers. So on Monday nights, I would stay up all night uh, to finish editing the articles, lay out the paper, and I'd leave a copy of the draft on his um, desk. He would complete final edits, leave me notes in the margins, and I'd make the changes the following day before I printed the final copy and delivered it to the printing press. David would often leave me really encouraging messages on the drafts. I remember one note he left me that read, I don't know what you're doing, what you're trying to do with this photo spread, but it looks really horrible. <laughs> and another note I remember uh, after an article I'd written said, I can't believe you sat next to the dean of Bible the entire evening, and this is the best quote you could come up with. <laughs> I never, but I never wilted under his notes. Um, the point is, David knew I could be better, so he pushed me to do better. And then there was this guy I was dating at the time, and he left to go home for the summer one day, and I remember him driving off and leaving me all alone, and I went down to the Babbler office, and I sat, and I cried, and I cried, and David could be really tough, um, but I also remember on that day, he gave me a hug, he let me cry on the shoulder of his suit, 
And he said, it will be okay. God loves you. You're going to be okay. Uh, and then one day when you're 20, year, 20 years old and the editor of a, of a college, a Christian college newspaper, your worst fear of failing comes true. One of my jobs of, as editor was to write the headlines for each article. And so one issue in April, there was a story we were running about the Bible department revising some of their Bible classes. So I wrote the headline for the article. I edited the rest of the paper, completed the design and layout, and sent it over to David for final review as usual. And I took the final draft to the printer, picked it up the following day, uh, delivered it to campus as usual. About an hour or so later, uh, David rushes into the Babbler office and he says, in this tone of urgency, we have to recall all the papers. Now, it was me not being diligent in my writing, and it was an oversight on his part that allowed us to print out and deliver thousands of copies of the paper for a Christian college that week that read, Lipscomb to do away with Bible classes. <laughs> The headline reads as though we are no longer offering Bible classes at a Bible school, to what David said. So he felt awful about the error, but I had to redo the entire issue in one afternoon. So I had to walk back across the campus and collect all the stacks of these thousands of papers I had just delivered. And by now, word is getting around that we're having to recall the issues, and students are rushing over to grab copies of the paper, back. It's going to be a collector's item, is what they're saying. It's been over 20 years now. It's not a collector's item. No. <laughs> it's not a collector's item. And I remember crying all the way back to the printing press with this revised copy, thinking how I'd failed. And I'd let David down, and I'd let the school down, and how humiliating it felt to be here having to reprint an entire issue. And I, then I cried all the way back to my dorm room, and the point is, sometimes when you're terrified of failing, your worst fear comes true. You do fail. And then what? You fix it, and you learn to move forward. Over the course of the next 20 years, I would go on to face many, many more challenges, career changes. And uh, almost every time, I, would, I have always thought, I can't do that. What if I fail? And I remember an old Lipscomb advisor who pushed me beyond what I believed I was capable of doing. And it's helped me, it's helped give me the courage to face new obstacles and failures, quite frankly, that comes with being in your 30s and your 40s. And uh, now I manage a staff of over 115 people in seven cities from Tampa to Minneapolis. And I work with people every day who I get an opportunity to pass on encouragement and counseling and Jesus. I do, I have a biblical application, a real one, consequently. Uh, Psalm 71, 18 says, Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Uh, consequently, that guy who drove off for his home in Connecticut that summer in his Red Geo storm, he and I just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. <laughs> So as we, as we enter the quarter um, and focus on the intergenerational experience, I just want to encourage you to find a scared 20-year-old, find a 10-year-old, find a new mom, give them a hug, tell them Jesus loves them and that it's going to be okay 
and they are going to be okay. Thank you. I am so glad you told us that was Travis. <laughs> the whole time I'm hung up down here going, oh, I hope that was Travis. <laughs> okay. Our next speaker tonight is one of our very own, I.T. Antigua. Grew up here at Bay Area. Graduated from Florida State University. Now works as a personal trainer at the Cheval Golf and Athletic Club in Lutz. I. No, no? Oh, go Knowles. Yeah, go Knowles. IT's the son of A.O. and Sammy, is married to the lovely and talented Zajay. IT is going to share with us the experience of teaching someone to walk again at the age of 86. IT wasn't 86, right? Okay. okay. Ladies and gentlemen, IT Antigua. So this was the first story that I actually thought of as soon as Mr. Tim had asked me to uh, to, to speak. So um, here it is. In 2010, I met Fred Baldassano, an 86-year-old man who came into the Northdale YMCA with his wife, Dolly, looking to improve his posture and reduce his reliance on his rolling walker. Uh, I was a recent graduate from college and worked on the fitness floor of the Y, answering questions and making sure uh, people didn't hurt themselves lifting weights. My ultimate goal was to go to physical therapy school. So the days I didn't work at the Y, I would shadow physical therapists in order to meet the observation hour requirements uh, necessary to apply to PT school. So there I was, watching as this older couple and my supervisor approached me. Fred needed an orientation and advice on what equipment to use to build up strength in his legs. I immediately put him on the new step. Uh, it's a seated machine that would allow him to push and pull with his arms and his legs. Uh, we exchanged stories. He looked at me over his glasses and told me how he and Dolly liked to bowl and that he would just love to get back out there again. I told him that I was a bad bowler and that I would be good if I never saw another bowling ball again in my life. We laughed. Thirty minutes came and went, and it was time for them to go. Before they left, I agreed to work with them the next time he came in. Over the course of the next few days, we got to know each other better. He would get on the new step, I would sit on the one right next to him, and Dolly would go out to swim. I found out he and his brother played wide receiver at West Point, and he told me his greatest memories from the gridiron. I told him how I was a walk-on safety for one year at Florida State, and that I regretted not taking full advantage of my opportunities. He spoke of his speed. I spoke of my quickness. He said I could never cover him. <laughs> I chose to respect my elder. <laughs> I wanted to do more for Fred. So I decided to start employing some of the techniques I learned from shadowing various uh, physical therapists uh, to see if we could help him achieve his goals. I'd have him sit and stand. We'd focus on core strength, 
And at the end of each session, I would have him use his walker and walk all the way to the door with me watching his every move. Head up, Fred. Head up, Fred. Shoulders back, Fred. Shoulders back, Fred. Stand tall, Fred. Stand tall, Fred. That was Dolly echoing everything I would say. <laughs> we had been working together for about two weeks at this point. And at the end of our second week, we were on our way to the door when Fred stopped suddenly by the main offices. He had a strange look on his face, and he exclaimed in a loud voice, I feel good! He then chucked his walker to the side and started strutting like Ric Flair towards the front door. I shouted, No, Fred, you can't do that! As my eyes got big and I ran to retrieve his walker. IT made me walk again! Is all he would say over and over again. I couldn't help but smile at his joy. I returned his walker and told him he can't be throwing it all over the place. And he continued to thank me. From that point on, Fred became my biggest advocate. If anyone new, new came into the gym, he would tell them without hesitation to make sure they work with IT. Then he would go into this, his rendition of how when he first came and he couldn't walk, you know, after a few sessions with me, he was able to walk. Now he's riding his bike and even got back to bowling again. I mean, I really didn't do that much, <laughs> just, just to clarify, I didn't do much at all. Um, <laughs> we, um, we worked together until I went off to graduate school in the fall of 2010. Before I left, I made sure to let him know he was in good hands because I knew Julian and Lorenz would treat him well. Julian and Lorenz would tell me stories of them working with Fred, and the conversation would always somehow include me. Is this how IT would do it? <laughs> IT is the best trainer here. Did you know walk again? <laughs> to which they'd respond, yes, Fred, you told us. They expressed frustration. All he does is talk about you. We can't tell him anything. During holidays, I would return in hopes that I, would, I could work with Fred again but I found out that he hadn't been coming as frequently due to a recent operation. I'd communicate back and forth with Dolly to arrange times that we could meet up at the Y when I was home. We were able to meet a few times, but never consistently. I'd check in, but with each email, things looked less and less promising. Tuesday, September 13, 2011. Hi, IT. We're not going to make the uh, 10 o'clock workouts. I thought it would be okay, but we, we finished dinner at 5. He no longer feels like going to the Y. I would take him earlier, but you know what his problems and strengths are. At this stage of his getting back to where he was before the operation, he feels that only you will be the one he should see. It would be nice if you were there on a weekend, but we really so appreciate all the time and work you have given him. He is riding his trike at least three to four times a week. Thanks, Dolly. Thursday. August 30th, 2012. Hi. We are getting along as best we can. Fred is not riding his trike, and I have given up trying to get him to do it. We would like to see you also, but uh, it will have to be another Saturday. Let me know when another time comes up. Keep well. Dolly.
Wednesday, June 19, 2013. This is to let you know that Fred passed away in his sleep this morning. There will be no services and he will be cremated. He just had his 89th birthday on the 4th and his Parkinson's has been progressing in the last month. Dolly. As discouraging as it was to read the last email from Dolly, when I think of Fred, I am always reminded that the small things we do can have a lasting impact. Whether it's paying attention to someone who is often dismissed or whether it's offering your five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus because you know he can take your small gesture and make it go further than you ever imagined. I try to make it a point to be a little more patient, a little more kind, and a little more loving because you just never know how long-lasting of an impact an interaction with you will have on someone. It might be the reason they need to persevere, or who knows, you might make someone walk again. Isn't it amazing the people that we touch with our lives and the people that touch us with our lives sometimes so unexpectedly? Thanks, IT. I told you that nobody volunteered for this thing tonight and nobody did. I told you that nobody is a, a professional speaker that's going to be up here tonight, including me, and nobody is. But I will admit I sort of brought a ringer in uh, for tonight. Um, if you're on social media very much, you know Jeremy Shelton has a presence on social media, and he uses that platform to encourage uh, others in regards to how God has worked in his life. Jerry, Jeremy is married to Jen. They have two beautiful children, Asin and Amora. Uh, keeping in his wheelhouse, Jeremy is going to be talking about technology in today's world. The good, the bad, and the connection. Hmm, sounds mysterious. Welcome, Jeremy Shelton. So, Mr. Jones told me to make sure I, I enunciate. I told him I'm from Arkansas, so get Google Translator out. So, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get it. I'll do the best that I can. So, it's been an encouragement so far. Just the stories have been amazing. But when Tim, when he emailed me and asked me about doing this, I was like, man, intergenerational. There's so many stories that I have. But I thought about a man that if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here, and that's my dad. And my dad is the type of person, um, like Tim said, I do a lot of things on social media. But he's one of those people that, if you say anything about social media, he kind of, he just completely, completely, completely hates it. Um, Facebook, he swears Facebook is the devil. Like, I don't know why, but for some reason, he just cannot stand Facebook. Um, he finally learned how to text, and I'm like, dad, it's a, it's a, technique to texting. So he texts me, how are you? But it was in all caps. So I felt like he was screaming at me. I'm like, I'm like, it's a certain way. It's a process when you text. So, um, so my dad, I, about, uh, about three years ago, um, I decided to, I'm a big, I'm in the shoes. And for those of you that do follow me on show, social media, y'all know that I do a lot with, um, 
like Jordans and retros to, to kind of try to connect with the youth. It's my way of using bait to connect with them. Um, the sneaker culture is very big. It's one of those things that teenagers get bullied with depending on the shoes that they have on. And it's my way to kind of, they're kind of afraid of walking into a church sometimes. So it's my way to open up their avenue and say, hey, listen, these are nice shoes, but let me tell you something with a little bit more substance. So I started something called True Tuesday about three, three years ago, and it's my way to use social media to spread the word of God. So as I'm talking to my dad and I'm explaining this, I'm like, hey, did you see my True Tuesday? No, nah, that, that book face, I just can't get on it. And I'm like, okay, it's Facebook, first off. And so, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, let me send you the videos. So my mom, she started watching it. And my dad, he started to, you know, he started to hear it. And the good thing about social media and stuff like that is, is that one way or another you get drawn in. And I was able to kind of connect with them and just let them know, like, we have such a big avenue through technology. It changes every generation. And the good part about it is, is that we're able to reach a, a huge amount of people through social media. And I've had the interaction with a lot of people to where um, just something that I said, it was just something that they needed to hear. Um, and it's not about the likes and the views, but it's about that, that one message like, hey, I needed to hear that. It was exactly what I needed to hear. And that's what it's, that's what it's all about. So just kind of being able to be able to share that with my dad for him to see, um, social media in a different light. His, the generation he came from, he still has a flip phone. Like, it's, and no, no, no offense to anybody that still has a flip phone. No offense. But what I'm saying is, is that, it's hard to find parts and pieces for flip phones. So I don't know how he still has the same one, but he does. Um, so as, uh, just, just to be able to show him a different avenue and a different viewpoint on social media, that was huge. It was, um, it was a big win for me and for, for him. Now, for those of you that know, I work at Walgreens. I've worked there for a while. And it's a company that's been... It's been here since 1960-something. I probably should know if I'm going to work there. But um, just over time, just with any type of business, generation after generation, technology changes everything. And I've had to have those tough discussions with a lot of team members at my or employees at my um, store where technology has made a task that they were supposed to have a job with more efficient, uh, efficient better, and easier, easier and cheaper. So I had to let them go. And that's the bad part about it. That's just from generation to generation, technology can do those things. But we also have found a lot of different ways, innovative ways to be able to give medications to people a lot quicker, um, just the communication between the doctor and us, and just making the process a lot smoother. That's the good part about it. I worked in Sun City, and to kind of go along with my um, dad, in Sun City, I don't think anybody has a smartphone. I think everybody still has dial-up if they even have internet in Sun City. So I worked in Sun City, and um, it's one of those things where, it's, you know, the kids send their, their um, parents and their grandparents' cell phones, and they email them these pictures, and they come into the store, and they want to know how to print them. And that is a total process to um, be able to do that. So this, lady, this, this young lady came into my store, and um, it was on a day that, I was working a crazy amount of hours, but just something just kept me there that day. And she came into the store, and she wanted to print some pictures, and I started the process with her, um, introduced myself. Um, she showed me the cell phone, 
and she had no idea what to do with it. She said her daughter had emailed her a picture. She stayed in Milwaukee, and she needed this picture printed for a memorial service. I'm like, okay, let's go right over. I'll walk you through. I'll walk you through it. So we we're at the kiosk, and just casual conversations, just to kind of make the process go a little bit smoother. Um, she proceeded to start to tell me about the person that she was getting the picture printed of, and she said it was a best friend, somebody that she had spent her whole life with and that he had just passed away and she was talking about her husband. Um, in this process, is the connection part of technology generation after generation is, is that you never know how you're going to connect with someone. So in the process of me doing my job and showing someone who completely hates technology, showing them this process of how we're going to get a poster printed quickly for her for a memorial service, um, she was able to tell me about her spouse, her best friend, the person that she loved the most. So I had this connection with this this lady at this moment. And um, I didn't have to say much. And that's the good thing about it. I didn't have to say anything. I was just doing my doing my thing. And she was just talking. And she was crying. And she was just sharing all these memories. And I'm like, wow, I feel like I know this woman for years. Like, she's just telling me everything. And I finished everything up, and I'm sure what a finished product, and she's crying, and she tells me thank you. And I'm like, oh, it's part of my job. And she was like, no, thank you for allowing me to mourn, allowing me to grieve. In the process of me doing my job, I was able to help her in ways that she could, that I never thought I would be able to. She was able to share with me, because she had to be strong for all of her kids, and um everyone else that was going through this grieving process, she she finally had an opportunity to talk and to vent and to let it out. And she told me, she was like, thank you for helping me. And I knew God brought me here for a reason, and that was you. And that, to me, that just meant everything in the world. Here I am thinking, you know what, I'm just doing my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I know so many times we look at technology as this, way for people to make money, whatever, whatever it is. And that, and that might be true, but God can use anything. He can use anything, any avenue, no matter what it is, whether it's shoes, whether it's technology, whether it's baseball cards that you collect. If you choose to allow him to use you, he's going to use it. But you have to be willing to allow him to use you. And that was the thing that I had to remember and understand three years ago when I decided to take on social media as an avenue uh, as far as how I was going to spread the word of God. Because to be honest with you, it's not in the sneaker culture. It's not one of the things that you see. You don't see that type of stuff. So I knew I knew what I was getting into, but I knew who my God was. So that was easy for me. It was like, okay, you know what, let's do this. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about something I love, but let's talk about something that I love even more and who loves me back. So that's my intergenerational. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Man, what a great example of people in two different worlds, you know, technology-wise, and uh, understanding how much it means to kind of bridge those two worlds and what it means to people. Thanks for that. We got one more speaker tonight. Um, and every time I hear this next person speak, I think to myself, she knows how to tell a story. Now, some people just have a gift of drawing you in when they talk, and uh, Portia Alderman 
I think, has been blessed with that gift. Portia is the wife of Daryl and the mother of Caden and Corin. And I don't want to give too much away uh, in regards to her story, um, but you're going to hear about how God worked in Portia's life, how he directed her path before she was even sure she was on a path. And he did it in a way that not only inspired her at the time, but continues to inspire her today. So welcome Portia Alderman to the stage. All right. So I was nervous um, and scared about possibly having to go after IT and then... And then it turns into I have to wait all the way until the end, and my nerves are like, but anyway, to God be the glory. Um, in 1992, I started middle school. I was a skinny kid with acne and features that I felt were too big for my body. I liked school because I liked to learn, but I always felt higher than normal anxiety about being at school. I always felt a little bit out of place, like I didn't quite fit. Those were tough years for me. My mother was encouraging and always told my sister and I that we were meant for more than the drugs and violence that plagued our neighborhood. At my school, there were two teachers, and they happened to be sisters. They were the most well-liked teachers on campus. As a sixth grader, I would hear my friends talk about them, and I couldn't wait for seventh grade. When I got to seventh grade, I got Mrs. Valentine, and she did not let me down. She had this huge personality that made everything she taught ten times better. We were all, well, at least most of us, fell in love with her instantly. It wasn't long before I was hanging around after school to help her with whatever she would, she would let me do. There were about four of us who stayed on almost a daily basis. During this time, she would tell us stories about her life and her family, but mostly she made us think about and talk about our own futures. She encouraged us to dream beyond what we could see, and we did. She was the best thing ever to me. She was the first person other than my mother who talked to me like that. Teenagers often take the encouragements of parents as criticism. But from Miss Val, it felt like validation. So we'd be there sweeping her floors or sorting papers or straightening her desk. Like I said, whatever she wanted would let us do, that's what we did. We just liked being around her. And when she was done for the day, she would drive each one of us home. Remember, this was 1992, when you could still do that. You see, our school was right in the middle of one of the worst neighborhoods in town. And my walk home often meant walking through some pretty rough scenes. Thinking back on it now, maybe it was her way of keeping us safe. I'm grateful to her for that. To this day, she's the best teacher I've ever known. Fast forward almost 30 years, and I end up teaching seventh grade social studies, <laughs> just like my favorite teacher. 
I didn't even really see the correlation at first until one day I was telling my students about my favorite teacher. Officially, I teach civics, but my students know me best as a storyteller. I want more than anything for them to be good people who contribute good to the world. After I finished my story, one of my students asked me, is Miss Val the reason that you became a teacher? The answer is honestly no. I hadn't thought about that at all before that particular moment. But I do know that she influenced my teaching in so many things, so many little things that I do in my classroom. What I remember most about her was how she made me feel. That's what stuck. She taught from her heart, and now I strive to do the same. While her life's purpose undoubtedly extended well beyond me, I do believe God perfectly placed her in my life when he did to prepare me for my own purpose. She wasn't just put there for me. I know that. But to me, she was mine. And now I belong to the hearts and minds of hundreds of other children. My job is hard and not always really rewarding. And sometimes I want to give up. Lots of times I want to give up. I say things like, they don't pay me enough to deal with this. These kids are driving me crazy. These parents are driving me crazy. And I vow that I'm done. And I vow that I'm done. But then a student comes to my class on the last day of school with tears in her eyes and tells me that she's never had a teacher like me. Who cares like she feels that I care for them? Even when I'm yelling, because I do yell. This is middle school. And she hugs me before I can stop her, because it's not 1992, and teachers don't hug students or drive them home anymore. Her words and tears are like an atomic bomb to my ultimate exit plan. I have to stay. So I choose to teach and inspire when I can and stalk Caden and Corin all the way through middle school. <laughs> the following year is even tougher but sprinkled with moments of clarity that keep me going. Like when my students teach me the bachata, or when I promise to always do my best to keep them safe at school following the scary days after Stoneman Douglas. Classrooms are scary these days, and kids are dealing with so much. They maneuver through this life often without Christ, and it breaks my heart. So I give them bite-sized pieces of Jesus when I can, and however I can. But it's hard because they aren't really mine, and I only have 50 minutes a day with them. 
So I pray for them, and I hope it's enough. Thirty years from now, I don't know if they'll remember me or what I taught in social studies, but I hope they will remember how I made them feel about themselves, about the world, and their place in it. Maybe, hopefully, they'll remember something I said that gave them hope or turned them down a path that leads them to God. Um, there is a poem that I share with my students. Sometimes I have some babies that need some extra loving. And this is a poem that um, I have read to my daughter since she was very little, and I want to share it with you. It's by Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And it's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you. How would you like to have a seventh grade teacher like Mrs. Alderman? That'd be awesome. I am so blown away by tonight. It's been so much fun and so insightful for me. Um, David Harkins, no, no more stories tonight. We're almost out of time, but we've got one more thing, two more things to do. I didn't hear you, but... Um, oh, no, we are out of time, David. But maybe we'll do this again another night. But you're not taking no for an answer, but I'm, I'm being firm. Mrs. Alderman, help me out. <laughs> hey, I do want to have a prayer before we close. Then we've got one other thing to do before we, uh, before we walk out the door. Bow with me. Father, we are so thankful that uh, you allow us to be here. And when I say here, I mean here in your kingdom. And here in Central Florida, in your kingdom, and surrounded by kind of brothers and sisters that love us and love you. And I'm thankful for the, the people that shared a part of their story tonight. And we're willing to, to just take some time and, and, and just share such, uh, such insights into their lives. And you talk about being united. And we talk about doing life together. But we've got to get to know each other. And we've got to get to care about each other. And, and I'm thankful for the kind of hearts that were exhibited tonight. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bless us and help us to be as watchful as uh, Portia was and as open as IT was and as willing as Jeremy and, and, and everybody that spoke tonight, just the kind of hearts that, uh, that want to bless others because they've been blessed by you. Father, 
be with us the rest of this week. And I, and I pray that we can be more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.